Okay, flip to Isaiah 9. We're going to look at two verses there, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, um, calling this eschatological politics. Uh, the series, of course, being Have Yourself an Eschatological Christmas. Hopefully you are doing so, so far. All right, Isaiah 9, 6. Let's pray, and then I'll read the text, and we'll dig in. Our Father and Sovereign God, we have gathered today to be reminded of your law word. We ask and pray that as we renew and remember covenant, uh, that your spirit would give us understanding, give us clarity, and give us greater faith and obedience, all for the sake of your son's glorious kingdom. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen. amen. Isaiah 9, 6 says this, 9, 6, and 7, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So last week we established a few principles and I want to simply remind you what we said uh, because I intend to build on them as we go. First, pietism has resulted in pessimism, which has essentially led the church to a fully conscious surrender of the world into the hands of evil. Uh, we can say this, we know that ideas have consequences and bad ideas have really bad consequences. Um, second principle we've been working through. Eschatology itself is the study of the glorious kingdom future as it blazes a trail into the present. Okay, so eschatology isn't, uh, think of it this way, eschatology isn't primarily um, speculation about the future history. Uh, it's about the future of history itself. So we tend to think of it as something that's going to happen, you know, a second Big Bang. <laughs> some major thing that's going to happen in the, in the future. It's not so much about those details. It's about where is history headed. That's how we should under, understand eschatology. It's taking what we've already seen that's been established in the past, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ, and seeing how it works itself out in history as history rush, rushes forward into the kingdom sunset. And that's going to be our main focus this morning. The third principle we said last week by and large, Christians believe in God, but not history. Christians believe in God, but not history. While humanists believe in history, but not God. Uh, even Karl Marx had a, a vision for the future. A vision for social change. Um, pietism slash Eastern mysticism. And on one hand, and then of course, Western materialism, Darwinian evolution, those things on the other hand, are both really bad ditches to end up in. And so you either have the theistic evolutionist guys who want to end up in the one ditch, and then you have, um, you know, Jesus is my friend, I keep him in my pocket Christianity. Um, on the other hand, this mysti mystical Christianity. Those are both bad ditches to go in. Fourth point, the, the incarnation of Christ, building on the last point, was not a mystical event, Right, that's where the Gnostics sort of developed it. It was not a mystical event 
which led to a mystical religion. It was an ethical event, a decisive judicial act of God to send his son, which then birthed a religion of dominion. So those are completely two different ideas, and, and you either have the biblical idea or you're off into the mystical land, and, and it's really not that fun anyway. So this, I think, is incredibly important to grasp, especially if we are to take seriously what Jesus has told us and not what we think he has told us. Massive difference. Massive difference. All right, and then fifth, the, the other point we established. The incarnation of Christ did not have the goal of redeeming man from space and time, but instead to redeem man from ethical deviation for the purposes of space and time. Again, we're not to be escapists. It is assumed from the New Testament that a regenerated person has been brought into the kingdom for the purposes of taking those kingdom principles into the rest of the world. That's the assumption, de facto position of the New Testament. You're in Christ, you're in his kingdom, Colossians 1. And now that you're in his kingdom, you're to work for his kingdom and push that kingdom into the rest of the world. So we were bought with a price, Therefore, glorify God in your bodies, not just your metaphysical meanderings. You know, think, think the whole, the movement. I'm sending good vibes your way, Jordan, back there. I'm going to send good vibes to you. And I don't know how to do that, but I'll try. We're not talking about metaphysical, wishful thinking. We're talking about glorifying God in obedience with your body, with your hands, with your mind, of course, too. So let's look at our text give you some historical context here. In Isaiah 9, we have what we call the locus classicus, the, the focus text, the, one of the most important texts when it comes to the birth of Jesus Christ. We are told in the first part of the chapter that there is doom and there is gloom and anguish in Israel, but it will be no more. Verse 1. What is he talking about? Well, Isaiah, if you recall, ministered during the time of King Ahaz, and more importantly, he ministered uh, during the time of Assyria's impending invasion. Assyria was, on, Assyria was on the doorstep, knocking at the door, and their threat was looming. This massive, um, well, it was, it was destruction, but not nearly what Nebuchadnezzar had done with Jerusalem and Judah. But they were ready to take over. In fact, history shows that um, Assyria would come, and Assyria did destroy Damascus, take it over, that was the capital of Syria in the north there. And, and then they would march on Israel in the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom of that time, uh, Samaria being, um, being its capital city. So they, they were there. They were present. Assyria was on the move. And, of course, we know in history in 722 B.C. that happened. Assyria did take out the northern kingdom. Israel was defeated. Many people were displaced. Many people were dispersed which was the ultimate exile. Now, Judah, if you recall, Judah, which was the southern kingdom of the former Israelite monarchy, was also at risk of invasion because of her haughtiness. Um, Assyria had taken out the northern kingdom, but they weren't going to stop there. They were going to keep going. Um, there was, Judah, of course, was on the cusp of the same defeat. Now, keep in mind that Israel had way more bad kings than good ones. So God was using them for judgment. During Isaiah's ministry, however, Judah's, Judah's judgment was on hold um, only because of the patience and long-suffering of God. 
but not for long. Uh, 200 years later, in 586 BC, Babylon would destroy her. Babylon would, would sack Jerusalem, the capital city, the city of David, right, forcing them into exile as well. So we have this looming threat. At the end of Isaiah 8, we see that, that this light, this illumination of God's word, the Holy Spirit's word has dwindled. Verse 20 says they have no dawn. They don't have any light. It's darkness. Um, due to their flagrant covenantal apostasy, people are going to be distressed. They're going to be hungry, verse 21 says of chapter 8. These covenant abandoning people, they don't want the lamp of God's word to be a light into their path. They would much rather go their own way, such as the obstinate person. In verse 22 of chapter 8, they look to the earth for hope rather than the teaching and the testimony of the law of God. So in, in view of that fact, they reap what they sow. They reap darkness. They reap um, distress, the gloom of anguish, the text says, and thus they're driven into darkness. So the first part of Isaiah 9 is God's future to them, right, past to us, future to them plans to bring about this great light, he says in verse 2. And he does that in order to restore God's people for the greater purpose of establishing the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. So, so unbelieving, unbelieving Israel and unbelieving Gentiles too, they're going to see this light. And what you need to know, why this is important for Christmas, is that both Matthew and Luke, in telling their story, quote this passage. And they quote this passage as being fulfilled at the birth of Jesus Christ. So he is the light coming into the world. He is the teaching and the testimony made flat flesh. Quite literally, we can conclude that Christmas, according to Isaiah 9, Christmas is God's invasion plan. It's his invasion plan. There's darkness, there's doom. The child's going to come. God is coming. He is invading earth with the authority of heaven. See, the God who created the womb would now enter the womb. What Adam had done, Messiah's coming would thus he would undo all of what Adam had done. So the darkness, the darkness that Isaiah describes here that had fallen on this, this wayward people would be chastened away, would be chased away by the arrival of the king. So you know the text. It's right in front of you. Look at verse 6. For to us a child has been born. Now, the, So the answer to sin and darkness is the birth of a child, but not just any child. It's the Christ child. The answer to Israel's woes, the answer to their threats of looming exile, was Christ, the child. Um, the coming child of the promise, what we call Christmas, is God's assertion of sovereignty, his assertion of authority over the domain of darkness. That's what Christmas is. And you talk to a Muslim or uh, anybody involved in the religion of Islam, they will say, you know, God cannot possibly have a son. It's impossible. Um, yeah, of course, we know Christianity teaches something altogether different. God does have a son. And the question we ask is, what kind of God bothers with sending a son? What, is, what, are, we, what are we supposed to think of that? Well, what kind of God? Well, the sort of God who is sovereign, who has unending authority. The one who alone has evil on a tightly woven, decidedly short leash. That's the type of God. The sort of God who knows that only through his son's actions in history can there be found a, a fresh, a new, 
efficacious solution to the, to the plight of man. So if Isaiah teaches us anything as it pertains to Christmas, it's this. And I know Eli will remember this. Uh, salvation doesn't come from the earth, right? It comes to the earth. That's Isaiah's point. You don't look to the earth for hope. Hope is here. See, the world falls underneath the authority and jurisdiction of the triune God. Okay, don't miss that, because some people don't think of it in terms of that. The authority, the, the, the world falls underneath the authority and jurisdiction of the triune God. And because of that, God acts. God acts. Evil's, evil's leash, which is controlled by God's sovereignty, is actually a noose. That's the irony of the death of Christ, right? Um, uh, as Owen famously and aptly said, the death of death and the death of Christ. Only by dying and exhausting death did Christ destroy death. So evil, evil is on a leash, and that leash is held tightly in the grip of God and his sovereignty. But that leash is quickly turned into a noose. Evil will not have its way. So given the fact that it's an invasion plan, we can basically say this. Um, and, and, and kids, you should, you should learn this too, all right? Especially when you're talking to your friends. Oh, what's Christmas about? Here should be your answer. Christmas is a military operation. <laughs> it's a military operation. All right? So let's, parents, work on that with them this week. All right? We'll see you. Um, and the reason I say that is because of this. Isaiah 43, 13 says that God is a man of war. What do I mean by this? In verse 6 of your text there in Isaiah 9, Isaiah tells us that the government will rest on his shoulders. What is he getting at? What is Isaiah getting at? Well, here's what I, I take this to mean that the rule and reign of God is going to be placed solely on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. We sort of shorthand when we say the government, it's sometimes we refer to it as this nebulous collective of people 40 miles east of here. <laughs> and that's not necessarily wrong, but government in its, in its most normal sense, we just mean uh, you know, self-government or family government. We just mean a covenantal structure where there, is, there are rules and regulations and so on. That's kind of what covenant theology teaches us. But the government here, he's not saying, you know, only the government in Washington, D.C. will be placed on Jesus' shoulders. He's talking about the burden of the rule and reign of God. That's the government. He's Messiah the Prince, which means he has full legislative authority. He has kingdom authority. The rule and reign of God will be placed on this child. Okay, I'm telling you, follow the train of thought in Isaiah 9. A child is born to us, and the rule and reign of God will be put on his shoulders. Okay? So we need to take seriously what the text says, not what we wished it would say. The child has the rule on his shoulders. If you recall, there's this moment in the Christmas story, of, uh, and Matthew tells us this, when Herod has this freak-out moment, but he doesn't want to let anybody know that he's freaking out because he had just heard there was a king that was born. And he tries to play it cool. Like, well, go find out. You know, I'd love to worship the guy. I mean, that would be great. Um, but the truth is, is he uh, has evil intentions. Well, he has a freak out moment because this king is a real king, a true threat to the powers that be. So when the child is born, he would, like strapping on a backpack, 
Come and carry with him the kingdom of heaven on the earth. We need to see the incarnation of Christ as being the kingdom being birthed as well. That's Isaiah's vision. Um, Christ's mediatorial reign began at his birth. Okay, let's make sure we're clear on this. This is what Isaiah is teaching us. This is what the New Testament teaches. Don't miss it. And I'll tell you why. Because there are dispensationalists and other pessimistic Christians who do miss it. Christ's kingdom was given to him at his birth. Okay, he does not come back to earth a second time to get a millennial kingdom. He already possesses it. Christ's kingdom was given at his birth. It was legally actualized at his death and resurrection, and it was asserted in the world at his ascension. Okay? I forget which professor in seminary had said this to me, but it struck me. He said, Jesus' ascension to his kingdom happened in stages just like David. David was anointed king, but he didn't actually become king until he had gone through quite a bit of turmoil. Jesus Christ's kingdom was given to him, it was placed on that young child's shoulders the moment he was born, in the womb even. It was placed on this child. It was legally actualized. I'm choosing those words carefully. It was because the atonement is a judicial act. It was legally actualized at his death and resurrection, and it was asserted in the world at his ascension, which means, quite frankly, that Christ's kingdom is not this sort of adjunct or add-on to the kingdoms of men. We, we are not trying to negotiate with humanistic terrorists who want to usurp the law order of God. We are not. We are not we, they do not have a valid kingdom. They have an inept kingdom where they're unable to govern and rule in a way that is righteous and true. See, the, the world boasts in centralized planning. The world boasts in administrative law. The world boasts in bureaucratic red tape. That's what the world does. But our boast is Christ. We say we have a child. His rule and reign is comprehensive, touching every person, every institution. Nothing is off limits. Why is it that the humanist kingdoms of men have a vision for all of life, but we can't get Christians to have the same vision? The tremendous burden of the kingdom of heaven was put on this child, which means that when he comes, when he comes, the kingdom comes. And when this takes place, Isaiah insists, the powers and the principalities will be toppled. And why do I know this? Because Isaiah 9 tells us this much. Look at your text, verse 7. Isaiah 9, verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. Okay, the rule and reign of the kingdom of heaven placed on his shoulders will grow. All right? It will increase, which is to say it will multiply greatly. That's simply the nature of the kingdom. It has no place for stunted growth, like it reaches its maximum capacity and then it doesn't do anything else in the world. It's a feature of the operation. The military plan grows. As Christ by his spirit through the preaching of the church, the witness of the church, conquers men, conquers institutions, one by one by one. It multiplies, compound growth. And as a son of David, he sits on David's throne, the text says, over his kingdom 
to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. You want to be a good exegete? Ask the question, from when on? Isaiah says, from then on, as in from the day that this child comes into their future. Our past now. So the question for us is this. Was Jesus... This is not a question we often ask, so bear with me. Was Jesus himself self-conscious about Isaiah's expectation? Think of Jesus in the temple. What was he, 12, right? In the temple. Was he self-conscious at that moment of Isaiah's expectations about the kingdom? There's, there, there's debate. There's a lot of debate. And I'm going to get into it, but I'm just asking the question. When we read the Gospels... Are we confronted with a man who knew the eschatological politics of what he was doing? Or did Jesus not understand the times? More to the point, did Jesus believe his preaching to constitute an impending, history-changing, eschatology-type event? If so, what was the event? Was the event meaningful? Was it purposeful? Did it have anything to do with the Old Testament? Now, I have answers for you. Not to leave you hanging. (laughs) But I need to do something else first. Questions like this, you should know, are asked a lot, especially in our recent past. And I'm going to mention one particular individual only because I don't want to go too far down the rabbit trail. Uh, Some of you may know this name, some of you don't. But at the turn of the 20th century, a guy named Albert Schweitzer he decided to go back into the world of the New Testament in order to trace the historical Jesus. Now, just so you know, anytime you hear someone say historical Jesus, you are likely to be encountering someone who is about to deploy some atheistic or pagan presuppositions. That's probably what you're going to encounter. Schweitzer's quest was very simple. He wanted to get rid of the Jesus of faith, in order to discover this true man, the Jesus of Nazareth, who had been hijacked by the church, he wanted to bring an end to the church's control of Jesus. So here's a few things that he said. And if you want to read more about this, um, Jürgen Moltmann, he's a German scholar, and N.T. Wright have written a lot about this. You can read those guys if you're interested. What, Swe- what um, Schweitzer had decided was that Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth he was a product of his first century environment, especially it was a product of what we call Jewish apocalypticism. Say that fast. (laughs) Jewish apocalypticism. Um, There were many end of the world type messianic movements um, before Jesus. There were plenty after um, the Bar Kokhba revolt happened after Jesus, where these Jewish men decided they're gonna take it upon themselves to fight, to revolt. And Jesus, of course, in in Schweitzer's mind, Jesus was just another prophet in a line of other would-be prophets. We called them doomsday prophets, right? You know, spurring on the next revolution. Here's Here's the argument. One, Schweitzer said this, Jesus thought that the end was near. As he was ministering, he thought the end was near. And so he sent his disciples off on a mission. You remember this. He he sent them off two by two into a mission to preach the good news of the kingdom. The problem, they came back. Hmm. They came back. There was no apocalyptic end. 
So Jesus had to switch gears. Schweitzer said. Number two, he said Jesus decides to hasten the end of time by causing problems in Jerusalem, by being a rebel rouser, and he wanted to hasten the end by incurring the wrath of Rome, and Jesus died on the cross. Again, there was no ginormous end of the space-time continuum. Jesus apparently thought the end was coming, but he was, he was actually wrong. He died. So now what? The disciples, they have these quote-unquote, visions. They have these appearances of Jesus, right? This is Schweitzer talking. <laughs> That's why it's in air quotes. So there was these visions, and so Jesus was dead, but we have to carry on his legacy. So what we're going to do then is take Jesus out of eschatology and out of the apocalyptic world, and we're going to bring him into the world of under the guise of ecclesiastical, um, what we call sacerdotalism. Let's just remember Jesus. We'll take communion. You know, he died. Poor guy. But we have to let his legacy live on. That, that was Schweitzer. So he basically said, to sum up, Jesus was wrong about what he was saying. Therefore, any moral profundity that we can conjure up will have to be done apart from Jesus. We can't get our ethics from Jesus. He died. And we can't get it from his Holy Spirit working in us because in Schweitzer's world... Who needs the Holy Spirit? Now, you might be asking why I would bring this up. Why do we talk about, you know, Schweitzer? I bring it up because like him, we have many pessimistic Christians who draw eerily similar conclusions as he did. I'm sure you've heard the arguments. Well, Jesus didn't really bring the kingdom. He didn't really bring it. I know Isaiah talks about the child and the government, the rule and reign of the kingdom coming with him, but he didn't really bring it. Um, Jesus was wrong about the Olivet Discourse. That was the position of Bertrand Russell. He was wrong about the generation passing away and the end coming, clearly, because we're still here. Maybe you've heard this. Well, Jesus doesn't really say anything about the kingdom of God coming to the earth because that's only going to happen in the future millennial reign when he sits on David's literal throne in literal Jerusalem after the third temple is literally built and literally constructed, literally. (laughs) I've heard that a million times. More could be said, but I'll spare you. To the contrary, Jesus Christ taught us a lot about the imminent coming of the kingdom. He preached the gospel in Galilee, saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Mark chapter 1. His first words in the gospel of Mark. He instructed the religious leaders. He said in Matthew 12, If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. John the Baptist, discerning the time, said, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 3, 2. We are told to pray in the New Testament. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Matthew 13, we learn of several parables which describe the growing nature of the kingdom as Jesus describes his present ministry's intentions. So what is my contention today? Jesus absolutely was self-conscious about Isaiah's expectations. He knew. He knew the Old Testament. He knew the prophets. He knew what he was doing. He knew The kingdom was on his shoulders, and there will be no end to its increase. Jesus himself knew. He told us in Luke 12, 32, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. 
Who could ever forget the powerful statement of Jesus in John 3.3? He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is straightforward. This is basic Christianity. No regeneration, no kingdom. Can't see it. No repentance, no regeneration. See, only being, by being born again can one see and enter and participate in the kingdom of God. Now, we need to qualify that. You can participate as an unbeliever in the kingdom of God by submitting to Christ. But the real power, the tangible power, is what Christ does through his people. And lastly, what does Paul say? As Andy read in Colossians 1.13, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Now, unless that means we've been transferred into some obscure future where there's a millennial reign of Christ on earth, we need to take the text for what it says and not what we want it to say or what we think it says. So when we speak of the self-consciousness of Jesus' understanding of himself, his understanding of his ministry, no doubt Jesus knew of Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. This is a key text. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one which shall not be destroyed. Guess what Jesus did? He walked around Israel declaring himself to be the Son of Man. And the Son of Man was a self-conscious description from this passage and even Ezekiel. See, as the perfect human being, this Son of Man was faithful. He was faithful in discharging his responsibilities before the Father. And thus, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, the kingdom was asserted and it was unleashed in the world. (laughs) The kingdom was asserted and unleashed. Jesus knew the text. He knew the text. He knew the passages. He knew what he had come to do. He enacted the will of the Father in obedience to the law of God, and God granted him the nations as an inheritance, Psalm 2, verse 8. See, in the world of eschatology, we're hitting the home stretch, all right, kiddos? <laughs> in the world of eschatology, there are several misunderstandings as it comes to the now present kingdom and its implications for the world. Okay, you've heard the language. Let's dissect it. The debate surrounds the language of already and not yet. You've heard this before, right? The already and not yet. As post-millennialists, we believe the kingdom is already here and not yet consummated. Okay, that's a key, key thing, thing to know. This is because the kingdom, which started as a rock, right, that entered in the first century to destroy the kingdom of Rome, will gradually grow into a mountain. That's the vision of Daniel 2. So what we don't mean is the schizophrenic like things like this. Well, the kingdom is already here, but it's not yet here. What does that even mean? The kingdom is already here, but it's not yet here. Um, the kingdom came spiritually already, but it's not yet here physically, as if Neoplatonism has ever offered anything good to mankind. What does that mean? Well, the kingdom is here spiritually, but it's not yet fully or physically. Um, We don't want to delve into hermeneutical gymnastics and say things like, well, the kingdom is established in heaven already. However, it's not yet established on earth, and it won't be until Jesus comes back and sets up his earthly kingdom. 
We need to think soberly about the already and not yet nature of the kingdom. It is already here. It is already growing. It is only not yet consummated. See, the reason I'm, I'm calling this eschatological politics is because the process for the restoration of all things, what we call the new heavens and new earth, has already begun. It's already transpiring. And it touches every area of life because in the birth of Christ, the government of the kingdom was placed on his shoulders. Okay? The great responsibility, uh, the, the great responsibility of gathering a fully regenerated, covenantally faithful people for the purposes of transforming all the nations, all institutions, it began the moment Christ entered the womb. Okay? Catch this. Because I think it's so important. The political interests of God on the earth started the moment the Holy Spirit conceived the miraculous unification of the divine Son of God with humanity in the virgin's womb. What an incredible thought. The process has already begun. The kingdom is already here and already growing by leaps and bounds. Jesus' preaching, which included this impending, history-changing event, that was the Old Covenant. The Old Heavens and our Old Earth passing away, what we call the Old Covenant, and thus the subsequent transformation of the Old into the New. The New Creation, the New Heavens, the New Earth, the coming of the New Covenant. This was established definitively and principally in his death and resurrection and his ascension. The, the, the Christ event, what we call his death, resurrection, and, and ascension, was the impending, history-changing, eschatological event. Jesus was not a product of his time, wishful thinking. He didn't think he was bringing about the end of the space-time continuum. Schweitzer was wrong. He knew self-consciously he was bringing the kingdom of God to the earth in his coming, in his birth. It was it, that moment when Christ was born, when Christ died, when Christ was raised, when Christ ascended to the throne, that was the great legislative moment when God asserted his political vision for the cosmos. Which means when we think about a cosmology, cosmology, our cosmology is only properly understood when we grasp the political significance of the Christ child shoulder-bearing government for the rest of history. That's cosmology. Christ has called all men, called all women children. Christ is calling you to come to him for forgiveness. He has demanded the unconditional surrender of the world. King Jesus desires the magistrates to repent and believe the gospel and seek to uphold justice for those who can't. King Jesus desires families to come to him to be healed for proper function. King Jesus desires the church to develop a politic of social action based on this remarkable event in history. See, if it's true that the kingdom that Christ proclaimed is synonymous with the new covenant that he established in his blood, and it is true, then it follows that, frankly, the current Christian status quo is severely, severely handicapped. We have memorialized Christmas while rejecting the political implications of it. Um, we have opted for a safe Christianity instead of one that dares to press the crown rights of King Jesus into every area of life. May it never be. 
of us. See, our task, we'll, we'll close with this thought, our task is to take what we get in the Christmas story, which is what I've argued, this comprehensive salvation for, for the comprehensive restoration of all men and, and institutions. We're supposed to do something with it. We're supposed to do something with it. Don't memorialize the Christmas story. Act on it. Don't just celebrate the birth of Christ. Deal with what the birth of Christ truly means for you, your family, for this church, for the rest of the world. Teach your children, parents, the exhaustive truths of the goodness of Christ so that they too may take up the banner and march into the future with the authority of Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Uh, Father, we give you the glory and the praise today as we remember the significance of Christmas. I thank you. I thank you for what Isaiah teaches us. And it, it's so clear. The text is so clear with what your intentions were when, when you sent Jesus into the womb. When this child was born, our Savior, our, the, the Son of God from eternity, who took on human flesh. The intention was the, the, intention was the establishment of, of the kingdom on earth. So, Father, would you give us a, a grand vision of that? Would your spirit um, convict us where conviction is due? Give us a, a, a sense of joy where joy is due? And would we be sober about Christmas and the implications as we seek to, to infiltrate the world of darkness with your glorious light? And I ask this in the powerful name of Christ, our King. Amen.